War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few, at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. In the World War I, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during the World War. That many admitted their huge blood gains in their income tax returns. How many other war millionaires falsified their tax returns, no one knows. How many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle? How many of them dug a trench? How many of them knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout? How many of them spent sleepless, frightened nights ducking shells and shrapnel and machine-gun bullets? How many of them parried a bayonet thrust of an enemy? How many of them were wounded or killed in battle? Out of war, nations acquire additional territory, if they are victorious. They just take it. This newly acquired territory promptly is exploited by the few, the self-same few who wrung dollars out of blood in the war. The general public shoulders the bill. And what is this bill? This bill renders a horrible accounting. Newly placed gravestones, mangled bodies, shattered minds, broken hearts and homes, economic instability, depression, and all its attendant miseries, backbreaking taxation for generations and generations. It would have been far cheaper, not to say safer, for the average American who pays the bills to stay out of foreign entanglements. For a very few, this racket, like bootlegging and other underworld rackets, brings fancy profits. But the cost of operations is always transferred to the people who do not profit. He walked out in the gray light and stood and he saw for a brief moment the absolute truth of the world. The cold, relentless circling of the intestate earth. Darkness implacable. The blind dogs of the sun in their running. The crushing black vacuum of the universe. And somewhere 200 animals trembling like ground foxes in their cover. Borrowed time and borrowed world and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it.
And lo, for the earth was empty of form, and void. And darkness was all over the face of the deep, and we said, Look at that fucker dance. Welcome to Heat Death of the Universe from Seoul, South Korea. Hard time stamp. September 23rd, 2020. It is 12.17 p.m. Quite a bit earlier than the last one. Maybe for the best, we'll see. Who knows? Time is but a construct. True. And today we'll travel back in time. Also true. Well, sort of. <laughs> yes, we uh, we want to do a little a little history lesson of sorts today. Um, I guess the is split into um, you know three three main topics that are all interconnected. Uh, the first would be this this figure. Um, Major General Smedley Darlington Butler, uh, also nicknamed Old Gimlet Eye. Hell of a name, Smedley. Yeah. We'll probably just call him Smedley Butler from here on out. But um, Or maybe Old Gimlet Eye. You think anyone ever if called I can him Smed? Uh, nobody who lived to tell the tale. I don't know. I imagine that's why he was called the Gimlet Eye. I don't even get that. What is a gimlet? Is that like a small goblet? It's a drink. It's oh, like that's a right. Yeah, yeah. There's like cucumber gimlets. Okay, but I, I don't. Remember. I don't know how it relates to his eye or. Anyway, look, we're right on track right away from the beginning. We, um, <laughs> so, we take our outline very seriously. So Smedley Butler, he is this very interesting uh, uh, historical figure. Um. He was like a very highly decorated uh, general in the military, or in the Marines, more specifically. And um, we also want to talk about something called the business plot, which was when this man, Smedley Butler, was approached by various uh, captains of industry, we'll say, at the time, who proposed to give him 500,000 soldiers to literally uh, overthrow uh, FDR's White House. And uh, he testified to Congress about this, and nothing came of it, but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then I think the bigger part, the biggest thing we want to talk about is... The captains of Capitol weren't punished? Believe it or not. I'm no, glad. nobody was really, nobody really suffered. I'm glad these days that we always punish the capital. Yeah, how crazy was it back then, man? They didn't just like immediately, in a fair way, take out these criminals that obviously screwed millions and millions of people. Well, luckily we, luckily we always we make li- sure to do. We live in a time of pure justice and fairness. Just kidding. The greatest thing to ever happen was the abolishment of the natural lottery. (laughs) 
How would you do that? You wouldn't. <laughs> you just wouldn't. Just any any person over a certain in, in in a certain income bracket just like has to have their children taken away from them and put into like a different income bracket. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is. Everyone is rised up or down, right to the middle. I guess you could just, I guess you could just like um, do some like eugenics with 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 the wealthy, but that seems fucked up too. Anyway, um, the other thing we want to talk about is uh, it can be summed up as the bonus army uh, saga, um, where a bunch of soldiers who are being fucked over by the government. Um, had a, a huge and lengthy uh, protest in Washington, D.C. that um, was quite interesting. So um, I guess we just begin at the beginning, right? Let's go. Um, so the business plot um, was... It was a re- reaction to to FDR, um, basically threatening some of of uh, some. Why am I stumbling on this? <laughs> uh, why don't I just read directly from this? Sure. Um, so Roosevelt's election was upsetting for many conservative businessmen at the time as his, quote, campaign promise that the government would provide jobs for all the unemployed had the perverse effect of creating a new wave of unemployment by businessmen frightened by fears of socialism and reckless government spending. That's <laughs> that's funny how when he promises to provide jobs for people and then these wonderful business owners start laying everybody off in response to that. Um, This never happens anymore, though. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Do you think job creation programs have led to more layoffs than any other programs in government? um, I think it's only when you put the uh, reins of job creation into the hands of private business private business owners yeah it it just reminds me of the argument that that you wouldn't hear this kind of argument so much anymore as as you would like hear well if we have to pay more in taxes then we're gonna have to charge you more for your mcdonald's french fries do you want that do you want that (laughs) i don't even want mcdonald's fries (laughs) well you know what i mean like um so the the argument is keep our taxes low or non-existent, and then we can keep uh, the prices fair to the consumer, which is also, you know, just bullshit. Um, but anyway. Um, I think the rich should have to shoulder the burden of taxes. That's very radical of you. <laughs> Thanks. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. <laughs> you should write a book about that. Um, That'd be irresponsible. But you'd be like a total pioneer, the first person <laughs> to think of such a wacky idea. Um, other so, and then other people uh, said that this reaction was about the gold standard, 
um, Jules Archer in The Plot to Seize the White House, wrote that with the end of the gold standard, conservative financiers were horrified. They viewed a currency not solidly backed by gold as uh, inflationary, undermining both private and business fortunes and leading to national bankruptcy. Roosevelt was damned as a socialist or communist out to destroy private enterprise by sapping the gold backing of wealth in order to subsidize the poor. Subsidize the poor. That's a... Interesting language for it is interesting language giving people like basic the barest of minimum. It's um, like the six dollars a day the American government has give us to deal with the pandemic. All right, that is how how the math works out. Well, given some of us, I never got my six dollars a day. Yeah, I it's got, in limbo. I got mine like six months after I was supposed to maybe have gotten it i tried clicking my heels together three times and saying there's no place like home (laughs) i don't know why i thought that would work no you're desperate i don't know why i'm making so many wizard of the odds uh (laughs) references these days oh right if i only had a brain um so basically this is all to say that um a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of the captains of industry, capitalists, um, the uh, robber barons, whatever you want to call them, um, around this time in the early '30s, hated FDR, and he famously welcomed their hatred. Um, so they approached this 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 war hero, uh, Smedley Butler. Um, and I'm like kind of oversimplifying it here. Like I'm saying they approached, I mean, there were specific people that approached him. Um, but the important part is that he was approached with this plan. And um, they even knew that he, at this point in his life, had like basically socialist like leanings and hated the idea of like profiting off of war. And, you know, he had, he had seen a lot of shit. He had been in a lot of wars. He had been through World War One. He had been through earlier wars. Um, but they still thought because he was so, he was so kind of beloved by the public in a way that he would be like the perfect like figurehead to like do this military coup. And um, he like immediately basically told them to fuck off. Good. <laughs> um, we need more of that. Because he, he, he realized like, right away that like they were just trying to protect you know their very narrow interests and um he eventually thought it was important to go public with all this information and he did testify in front of a committee um but it was like none of the people that he um he he talked about um having approached him ever had to give any testimony and were never even contacted. Um, basically nothing came of it. And like, it was almost immediately in um, written off as I think the New York times called it a giant hoax with like, with no reason. Like they had, they had no reason to disbelieve him really. And the fact that they didn't really talk to any of the people that he um, accused just shows that they had no interest in like, you know, sorting this out and like getting any sort of justice. And I mean, you'd think 
that would be a big priority when someone is like plotting like an act of insurrection like that. Yeah, you'd think trying so. to overthrow the president personally with with an army with the you know a portion of the actual country's army. Um, but yeah, and and a lot of this has still been swept under the rug. Like you don't really read about this in your standard history books and things like that. Um, as well as you don't really read about Smedley Butler and. Um, he wrote this book that I think is pretty interesting. It's more of a pamphlet than a book, I guess, um, called War is a Racket. He gets right to the point, which I like. Um, it's five short chapters. Um, first is called War is a Racket. Chapter two, who makes the profits? Chapter three, who pays the bills? Chapter four, how to smash this racket? Exclamation point. Chapter five. To hell with war! Exclamation point. I like the titles of the chapters. Yeah, that'd be this very. It's very clear as well. Like um, the "Who Makes the Profits" chapters was um, enlightening. I think that he would be very sad to see how how the war economy has uh, progressed. Yeah, he he died in 1940, so he um, he didn't get to see like. So he missed the war ma- all the time. Yeah, he missed the war, like the um, endless, basically endless series, series of, of wars. wars. Yeah. Do you want to read anything from that chapter? Do you have it up? I do not have it up at the second. Okay. I'm sorry. It's all right. I'll read the first paragraph. Okay. Um, who makes the profits? The World War, which at this point was, there had only been one. So he's referring to the first one. Uh, this was written in 1935, by the way, or somewhere around there, published in 35. The World War, rather our brief participation in it, has cost the United States some 52 trillion, oh sorry, 52 billion dollars. I should see what that is before, with inflation, but figure it out. That means $400 to every American man, woman, and child. And we haven't paid the debt yet. We are paying it, our children will pay it, and our children's children probably still will be paying the the cost of that war. The normal profits of a business concern in the United States are 6, 8, 10, and sometimes 12%. But wartime profits, ah, that is another matter. 20, 60, 100, 300, even 1800%. The sky's the limit. All that traffic will bear. Uncle Sam has the money. Let's get it. Of course, it isn't that it of course it isn't put that crudely in wartime. It is dressed into speeches about patriotism, love of country, and we must all put our shoulders to the wheel. But the profits jump and leap and skyrocket and are safely pocketed. Let's take a few examples. Um, Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, I was just looking at the uh Inflation of fifty-two billion to today. What is it? Time seven hundred ninety trillion three hundred ninety-three billion nine hundred eighteen. Or sorry, I I can't fucking read numbers. Seven hundred ninety billion three hundred ninety-three million nine hundred eighteen 
thousand one hundred twenty-eight dollars and sixty-five cents, to be exact. <laughs> Thank you for the precision. Wait, I know, but now I forgot what the first number was. How many trillion? Not trillion. I just misread my place. I didn't see a. I did. I added a number. It's seven hundred ninety billion. So fifty-two billion would be seven hundred ninety billion okay. by today's standards. So almost a trillion. Yeah, I mean that's like that's still a crazy amount of money. Oh yeah, and um, I mean think about the costs of like, I don't know, say our most recent several wars. Um, I mean the the costs are just um on different things. Like you know, it's mostly technology and and tanks and planes that don't get used and things like that. But um, the Iraq War cost double the price at one point nine trillion dollars. Yikes! More than double. Um, he gives a few examples of how people profited off of uh, wars. Um, so, for example, he talks about Dupont. Uh, he calls them the powder people. I gotta. I like this. Um, um, just seeing this moment in time in some of the language. Um, take our friends, the Duponts, the powder people. Didn't one of them testify before a Senate committee recently that their powder won the war, or saved the world for democracy, or something? How did they do in the war? They were a patriotic corporation. Well, the average earnings of the DuPonts for the period 1910 to 1914 were $6 million a year. Uh, it wasn't much, but the DuPonts managed to get along on it. Now let's look at the average yearly profit during the war, war years. 1914 to 1918, $58 million a year profit we find. Nearly 10 times that of normal times. And the profits of normal times were pretty good an increase in profits of more than 950%. Okay, so his point is well taken here. It's just that companies, you know, even plundering companies that are doing all kinds of nefarious shit not during wartime, still making tons of money, but during wartime, it's just, it's like tenfold. I need to make a quick correction. Yeah. I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs> When I adjusted for inflation, I adjusted for the start year being 1924, which is not the year of the war. The war was 1910 to 1914. So adjusted for 1914, the war was actually 1,351,573,600,000 today money. So it was nearly the price of the Iraq war, give or take a few, like, give or take 300 billion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's crazy is Jeff Bezos can almost afford to throw a world war. <laughs> throw a world war. <laughs> yeah, except he doesn't have to. He can like uh that's he would maybe... just profit. Right. Um there's it's, that as well. It's nuts. I wonder what's doing more for profits in businesses, pandemics or wars cuz pandemics. I think war, war is still very 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 profitable. Um Okay, sorry. No, it's okay. Um 
I don't think we need to read any more of his examples, but you get the idea. Like during wartime, companies make like sometimes ten times the amount they normally would make. Yeah, I've always heard that war increases profits, but I don't think and I've never really looked into the numbers and it is nuts to see like I mean at minimum it seems these countries are like a three hundred uh, 300% profit, but most of them are making like a thousand percent profit, if not more than a thousand percent profit. Yeah, he said just in here, and this was 1935, he said um, sometimes up to 1800% profit. Um, and this is this is just some retired general. Like, this is not like an expert, but like even he can do the math, you know? And um, that's what I kind of like about this, this short like book is he just gets to the point because he's, you know, maybe it's that sort of military mind. I don't know, but he's, he's really getting to the point quite quickly, cutting to the quick. Um, so he's, he basically establishes that, um, actually the first chapter when he's just sort of outlining everything, he talks about how he realized at one point in his in his military career that what he was doing when he was going around like doing these you know, heroic things and um, leading the military to to victories that he was just um, he was just working. He wasn't working for his country the way he thought he was. You know, he's just working directly for a handful of businesses and um, his eyes were opened and um, yeah, I bet he was, uh, he was like a Republican and um, gradually became like, I mean, today he would be, he would be considered like by our, by the Republicans today. I mean, he'd be considered like the most hardcore communist, like just, like possible um the uh leader antifa was promised yeah he <laughs> and uh yeah we'll get some to some other similarities between today's protests and uh the ones back in this time um i just want to read a little bit more from the book um he offers a solution how to smash this racket. So by, by chapter four, he's established that there is very much so a racket, um, that companies are incentivized to, well, that war is, um, is something that, uh, will help a company profit basically. And that means that powerful companies are going to be pushing the government to get into more and more wars. And he sees this as a terrible thing because he's seen war up close, very up close. And um, uh, he goes on to his prescription, basically, I'll just, I'll try to summarize it. How to smash the racket. He says, uh, he says, a few profit and the many pay, but there's a way to stop it. You can't end it by disarmament conferences. You can't eliminate it by peace parlays at Geneva. Well-meaning but impractical groups can't wipe it out by resolutions. It can be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. 
Now you might think to yourself, oh, all we have to do is take the profit out of war, Smedley. That's so easy. <laughs> he knows it's not easy. But um, he goes on to say, the only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. So um, he's saying that capital and industry and labor should be drafted, basically. Um, yeah into the into any sort of war that might be happening before just uh, regular citizens um one month before the government can conscript the young men of the nation it must conscript capital and industry and labor let the officers and the directors and high-powered executives of our armament factories and munitions makers and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturers of all other things that provide profit in wartime as well as the bankers and the speculators, be conscripted to get $30 a month, the same wage as the lads in the trenches get. Just, I mean, it's like, you know, last our last episode we talked about, like, fantasy, yeah. <laughs> political fan fiction. This is kind of political fan fiction this for me. This is a little bit of political <laughs> fan fiction. I mean, just reading that, imagining, like, imagining all of these, these fucking parasites these like wall street fuckers jeff you gotta sit down we're going to war your pay is being reduced to thirty dollars a month (laughs) to the wages of a lowly mcdonald's employee and everything else you have will be used for the war effort and redistributed among everyone until we are out of war i imagine we'd end war real fast if suddenly we said hey rich fucks Everyone's going to be equal during wartime. Yeah, and which is all the time now, right? Yeah, forever. Um, he goes on. I, I think I think this is a good chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read a little bit more. Um, Let the workers in these plants get some wa- uh, the same wages. All the workers, all presidents, all executives, all directors, all managers, all bankers. Yes and all generals, and all admirals, and all officers, and all politicians, and all government office holders. Everyone in the nation be restricted to a total monthly income not to exceed that paid to the soldier in the trenches. That's some real commie shit right there, huh? It is. (laughs) This is a Republican military general. Well, Republicans were different during that time. I know, and he also like, I mean, he ended up voting for socialist politicians by this point in his life. Um but um let all these kings and tycoons and masters of business and all those workers in industry and all our senators and governors and ma- uh, majors pay half of their monthly $30 wage to their families and pay war risk insurance and buy liberty bonds. Why shouldn't they? They aren't running any risk of being killed or having their bodies mangled or their minds shattered. They aren't sleeping in muddy trenches. They aren't hungry. The soldiers are. Give capital and industry and labor 30 days to think it over, and you will find by that time there will be no war. That will smash the war racket. That and nothing else. Maybe I am a little too optimistic. (laughs) Capital still has some say. Oh, boy. He would be in for such a rude awakening today. Yeah. So capital won't permit the taking of the profit out of war until the people, those who do the suffering and still pay the price, 
make up their minds that those they elect to office shall do their bidding, and not that of the profiteers. This is an age-old Maybe he had a bit problem. too much faith in the people. Well, I mean, during this time, it wasn't quite as like locked down as it is today. Um, the boot wasn't as heavy. It wasn't quite as heavy, I don't think. Um, but also, he's—I mean—he's just saying he's like calling it as he sees it. He's like, if there's any way to stop this, this is the only, basically, the only way. And it's kind of the same thing that a lot of people are still. It's not the same exact policy, but like the whole point is to sever the ties between like industry and government, basically. Yeah. And as he's, as I just read, he said that, so that politicians do the bidding of the people, not of profiteers. Um, well, one, one out to that, which I don't think he brings up because I don't even know how big of an issue it was, but I imagine that, um, lobbyists for corporations, wartime corporations are very much into the business of increasing war. And perhaps if we kind of banned lobbyists, we would be in a better situation. Oh, yeah. That'd be, I mean, that would be a first step for sure. I mean, or at least, um, at the very least, even tried to regulate it at all. Like, because some 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 of the like the bullshit arguments for like why lobbying is is a good thing ultimately is that well you can you can be a lobbyist you as a regular citizen can go yeah. lobby you know you can go to Washington you, you could go and slip a ten dollar bill into but what they're saying like well you it's not even you're not paying anybody you just you go you can go talk to them with your group your little lobby you know it's like it's a fucking joke. I mean, like when like, say like the sunrise movement, if they go to Washington, do you think they're even let in the door by like, um, I think it was them. I think it was the sunrise movement. It was, it was some environmentalist movement. The ones who did like that sit in and Nancy Pelosi's, um, office. Um, I don't know. That was like a, two years ago or something maybe, but that's about as close as you can get as a yeah. as a regular person who doesn't have you know power and influence already. You know, it's 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 a ridiculous joke. So, yeah, the whole thing should just be banned outright. I mean, it's purely bribery. But, um, I'm gonna keep reading from this chapter just a little bit more. Another step necessary in this fight to smash the war racket is the limited plebiscite to determine whether a war should be declared. I had to look up that word. Um, it just means like um, a straight vote from like the the regular populace, I guess. The plebes. Um, uh, a plebiscite not of all the voters, but merely of those who would be called upon to do the fighting and dying. He's saying like, just the people that would be soldiers potentially. And and he goes on to explain why there wouldn't be very much sense in having a 76 year old president of a munitions factory 
or the flat-footed head of an international banking firm, or the cross-eyed manager of a uniform manufacturing plant, all of whom see visions of tremendous profits in the event of war, to have them voting on whether the nation should go to war or not, they never would be called upon to shoulder arms, to sleep in a trench, or to be shot. Only those who would be called upon to risk their lives for their country should have the privilege of voting to determine whether a nation should go to war. You know what's so fucked up about reading this now? Is that, like, there's just no votes, period, by anybody yeah. about war. <laughs> yeah, none whatsoever. It's just a unilateral decision now. And, like, we've all just, like, kind of accepted we've it. Accepted it. I mean, I've lost count of how many wars we're in. And it's like, like 14? It's still about, like, seven. I don't know. Technically, maybe. I mean, it's probably more than... I mean, there's more military, like, engagements going on around the world. But, like... I know. I just know that like it went from two to seven un, uh, under Obama, and I think it's probably remained around the same with Trump. But um, I, I guess know. not a single soul voted on any of those things, though. Like not even the people that are supposed to vote about war, which are our elected politicians. Um, There's not a hard number for how many wars we're in, but it could be anywhere from. Technically zero to 134, depending on how you define war. <laughs> That's what it seems to be saying when I look up things on foreign policy or... 134 so and zero. <laughs> yeah. So it's quite the range. So they're just... It's all just fucking... That's just being like really... Um, it's like a lot of semantics, I guess. Um, but yeah, this idea that, okay, the only way a nation goes to war, or at least America, is the people that you plan on sending on the front lines, whatever, they they vote on it. Um, I imagine if that happened, we wouldn't be going to so many wars. Highly think. doubtful. <laughs> I mean, there are some hot-blooded 18-year-old kids who dream of... Uh... I think they'd be outvoted by people who've actually seen battle before. Oh, I do too. <laughs> um, Maybe they would even have their votes suppressed by people that have seen battle before. <laughs> I don't know if they would even need to do that. I think it would. I think they'd be like the almost like the purest like democratic vote we'd ever have in this country is just like, okay, soldiers, put your vote in the ballot box. And we're gonna count them up. One person, one vote. Oh, looks like what? I mean, I would imagine it would be like 80% to 20% would be like, no, let's not do this fucking useless uh, non-defensive war. Which brings us to the other step um, in his plan is that um, a third step in this business of smashing the war racket is to make certain that our military forces are truly forces for defense only. So he's very much, um, I don't know if you would technically call him a pacifist. I think he gets called that by certain people during this time, but he's saying that like, like offensive wars are just immoral and unnecessary and that it should only be, Defense. In times of being, yeah, on the defensive. Um, <clears throat> he says one thing here that I think is kind of good. Um, 
at each session of Congress, the question of further naval appropriations comes up. The swivel chair admirals of Washington, and they and there are always a lot of them, are very adroit lobbyists, and they are smart. They don't shout that we need a lot of battleships to war on this nation or that nation. Oh no, first of all, they let it be known that America is menaced by a great naval power. Almost any day, these admirals will tell you, a great fleet of the supposed enemy will strike suddenly and annihilate 125 million people. Just like that. True. Then they begin to cry for a larger navy. For what? To fight the enemy? Oh my, no. Oh no, for defense purposes only. Then incidentally, they announce maneuvers to the Pacific. For defense. Uh-huh. I like his sarcastic uh-huh in the 1930s. Um, the Pacific is a great big ocean. We have a tremendous coastline on the Pacific. Will the maneuvers be off the coast two or 300 miles? Oh no. The maneuvers will be 2,000, yes, perhaps even 3,500 miles off the coast. The Japanese, a proud people, of course will be pleased beyond expression to see the United States fleet so close to Nippon's shores. Even as pleased as would be the residents of California, were they to dimly discern through the morning mist the Japanese fleet playing at war games off Los Angeles. So, in other words, saying a lot of the grifting that goes on is under the guise of, oh, we need we need defensive you know, ships and whatnot, but they just end up getting used in offensive wars. And um, to summarize, he says, we must take the profit out of war. Two, we must permit the youth of the land who would bear arms to decide whether or not there should be war. And three, we must limit our military forces to home defense purposes. And uh, and he gives kind of a big some like kind of restate restatement of the thesis in the last chapter, which is called to hell with war to hell with war. But, um, I don't know. I think, I think that's probably enough from that book about that book. I mean, what do you, what do you think about this, this guy and this book and whatnot? I think is. Um, theories interesting. I even think some of it could work. I don't know how how would you go about ever implementing this stuff without just like vast changes in both public opinion and like just public backbone to it. And the way at least during World War One, World War Two, or even up to Vietnam, the way war was advertised it was more real for people advertised that reported on yeah and now they've turned it into something that's almost invisible like we're just in constant invisible wars i mean a quick google search says there's somewhere between zero to 134 (laughs) active conflicts right now they're not even wars they're active conflicts yeah um and it's like we're always at war but we never have to look at it. So like, how do you even muster people into like a state where they really want to do something about it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, and I do agree that probably the best way to get out of war in general is to remove the profits from war because the only reason anything seems to happen in this world is because of profits. Like it's never about the greater good. It's about how can we lie and, the pockets of 
the rich, the powerful, and the despicable. Despicable. God, I hate that word. It's been it's been taken from me. Why? I don't know. I just feel like I just feel like it has. I can't even explain it. <laughs> the word's been taken. It's been taken. What by like the the animated movie? <laughs> no, I I think um, I think it just makes me think of the word the deplorables, and then I think of Hillary oh. Clinton, and then I'm like, God, she could have just went ahead and said the despicables, and I don't, I don't know. I'm I'm on a bit of a tangent here. <laughs> it's all right. I was just what wasn't sure how that word had been like appropriated, but I see what you're saying. The connection to the hrc um so smedley butler he he was involved in this you know this business plot or rather he was approached to overthrow the government um he wrote this this kind of call to arms so to speak little pamphlet and he also was a big supporter of um, this other event that happened um, in the early 30s, uh, the Bonus Army um, marches, you could call it, or demonstrations. This, going back to what he was talking about, military spending... Uh, spending for defense, like talking about the fleets of ships coming and the other things, the admirals needing to make sure they have more and more weapons stockpiled. I think that's very, um, very on the nose, even now. Like, you know, you look at American spending on military and the latest, the latest I see is from like May 13th of this year. And um, we've, we're spending or like budget for spending is $732 billion, which um, if you combine China, India, Russia, Saudi Arabia, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, Japan, South Korea, Brazil, all those countries combined get to $726 billion. So that's almost close to what America spends on military. Right. It's, it's one of those like factoids that like you hear a lot, at least depending on your political persuasion that like you have to like almost kind of stop and you get kind of numb to it, you know? Yeah. Same with like stats on like how we have 25% of the world's prison population. Um, It's 15% of all federal spending and roughly half of the discretionary spending. Yeah. Um, It's insane. Um, so I guess this bonus army situation, the, the, the background of it is basically, um, that soldiers who, uh, returned from world war one, they, a lot of them found like their decent jobs, were no longer available that they had before joining the military. Did people take them? Robots took them? (laughs) Steam-powered robots? I don't really know exactly why. Um, I mean, I'm sure it had something to do with, like, the fact that, like, 
Companies the, got the sweet taste of wartime profits and realized that they could no longer exist on non-wartime profits. That, I mean, yeah, I mean, they probably, there was probably like, um, just like a shedding of jobs, um, because like profits are up and they don't need to produce as much. I, I don't know exactly, but <clears throat> in any case, they wanted they wanted like bonuses because the pay at the time for soldiers was $1 a day, which roughly in this basic time was about 18 or $19 a day. Not much, not very much at all. That's very little. And I think it was, and it was a dollar 25 if you were overseas. Um, also not a lot of money. But when they came back, um, there was a, a bill written up in Congress that um, was meant to give bonuses to these to these soldiers. In this was in 1924, so this was still like you know five years after these these people came home from the war. Um, but uh, our wonderful president at the time, Mr. Coolidge, he it like cool. immediately v- vetoed the bill, <laughs> and he's quoted as saying here, "Patriotism bought and paid for is not patriotism." It's true. You should be willing to lay down your life for profit. No, <laughs> yeah, well, and for free to you, like. <laughs> well, you. Shouldn't expect profit, but the people who do expect profit should get eighteen. They also deserve sacrifice. More sacrifice is something that people need to make for their overlords. If you're not willing to sacrifice for the greater goods of the rich, what are you willing to do? Don't put words in his mouth, man. He just said patriotism should not be paid for. <laughs> Um, that's true. Luckily, I guess, luckily Congress overrode his veto, like just a few days after. That's cool. And so this did ultimate, this first bill did ultimately get passed. But the problem with this bill was that anyone that was supposed to receive more than $50 in bonuses, um, would have to wait until 1945, some 20 plus years after the fact, which is why a lot of the soldiers started calling these um, bonuses like things like um, things like funeral bonuses or death bonuses, because yeah, I mean, in all like likelihood, a lot of them would have probably had fucking been dead by then. I'm sure it's not an accident that they chose 1945 as when they could cash in. Sure. So they basically gave like these certificates, these like basically worthless pieces of paper to Here's these soldiers. Some money for your kids. But the, maybe I mean, who knows? I mean, there probably would have been some technicality where even their family wouldn't get it. But. Oh, he's not alive anymore. <clears throat> that means the money has to be redistributed. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was like the ultimate, like if that was built into the bill from the beginning. Really, if it was just because it was just to placate these soldiers that were pissed yeah, off, sure. pissed off and poor. And we have to remember, like, so this is in the twenties, where like. 
you know, we're ramping up to like the Great Depression, right? And this is like what 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 happens right before like a huge depression? Like wealth inequality becomes greater and greater. People at the top hoard more and more capital. And um nothing like that's happening these days. Yeah. You can't draw distinct parallels between then and uh the last, say, twenty years in America, maybe even thirty, forty years. But um I forgot where I was going with that. Um in any case, uh <clears throat> Eventually, you know, the Great Depression hits and, you know, people are in complete misery. Starving. Yeah, they're actually, like, starving. And um, kind of organically, this made me think of, like, how, like, a mass movement was created in in the uh, pre... Pre-internet, pre internet, pre cell phone, whatever days, like these guys organized quite, I think, kind of organically. But it, like some of the descriptions I read said they, you know, they like hitchhiked and some people even walked like far distances all to Washington, D.C. to basically to demonstrate and say, like, give us our bonus money now. Like, I suffered in the war, you know it would have been more than a decade ago because by, by the time they all arrived to, um, um, to Washington, it's 1932 and they're doing like marches. And, um, but then they also set up these Hoovervilles, which for those who might not know, Hooverville was what was, um, is basically like an impromptu, like shanty town that, they were all over the United States during the Great Depression. But there was one that was considered, like, maybe the largest one ever in the country, like, right by the, uh, I mean, kind of more or less right by the White House. Um, I forget exactly where, but they built this, They and, and these get, these soldiers actually ended up bringing their, their families, you know, their wives and their kids, because... They didn't have homes to like go back to at this point, basically. And yeah, they just they built this huge shanty town. Um, that even like it really became like this like um. It's interesting to me how it like became like a real like little community. Like they they made like streets that had like street names. Um, says here they built sanitation facilities. They had da- daily parades. Um, they would have like mu- live music, like someone wheeled in like a piano from somewhere. Um, they had like a like a barber shop, and it was basically just like this like self contained little town that they sounds built out like, of trash. <laughs> it sounds like Occupy Wall Street to me to some degree. It it does have um, similarities to that. Um, I mean, the difference would be that these people were, like, actually, like, um, emaciated and starving. And but, they, but they, but the, and they had concrete demands. They had concrete demands, very concrete demands, actually. They said, look, there's this money, there's this law. We're writing a new law that says, give us the money now. Give it to us. 
you fuckers. Um, yeah, something like Occupy is a bit more chaotic. And you know, and, the rich capitalists at the time were really thinking, maybe we should give it to them now. Money's basically worthless during the Depression. Well, there was one thing that, that was tried. They tried to give like $10,000 to the whole group, which like would have been like nothing compared to what they would have gotten from there. Even the bonuses they wanted were basically nothing. They were like, I think each soldier on like they would have gotten what today would be the equivalent of a thousand dollars if they yeah. had gotten their bonuses that right then and there. That's less than like six dollars a day. <laughs> yeah. Um well depending on the timeline. But I mean, considering that they had fought in the war like 12, 13, 14 years prior. It seems long overdue, wouldn't you say? Yeah, you'd think um, you'd deserve a paycheck for that. Yeah. Um, and uh, another thing was that, um, I guess a sort of positive thing was that one of the, the chief of police or is it the superintendent of police, uh, Pelham D. Glassford, he was this sort of like, I don't know. I read that he was like sort of eccentric character. He they rode around town on a blue motorcycle, which I guess was considered wacky at the time. But um, it was a little wacky. He he like had sympathy with these people, and he didn't like just trash their place and kick them out. Like would almost uh, would one hundred percent happen today. Well, yeah, I'm. I know the protest was eventually disbanded because. Um the president at the time had the military sent in to basically torch their tents. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. But I'm jumping ahead. But uh, before that, the, um, the police basically worked, worked with them to like allow them to exercise their, their right to protest, even though technically they were like, I guess, trespassing on, maybe it was probably government land property or something. I don't think that the police had been completely compromised by 1920. No. Well, and this was 1932, but yeah, I can't speak for that a hundred percent though. I mean, I'm not trying to say the cops were like all great, but like, it's just for, for the, this bonus army, as they were called, I think they were called that by the media. They had their own name for themselves. It was more um, official sounding even. Um, Bonus Expeditionary Force, the BEF. Um, Although that's kind of more of a mouthful than just the Bonus Army. So, But for their sake, they got kind of lucky in the sense that this chief of police guy was sympathetic to them and didn't want to just um, kick them out. And, um, but eventually he was kind of forced to by the federal government, you know, Herbert Hoover was in office by this point, uh, that fuckhead. Um, and yeah, he had just nothing but disdain for, for, for these soldiers. Um, of course, um, he wouldn't meet with any of them, any of the representatives. He actually at one point fled the White House to like his vacation home in Virginia just because he didn't want to even like see them like on the White House lawn. Was this like the time that um, our current our current guy in <laughs> office, our current uh, sentient Cheeto, sentient <laughs> Cheeto. 
ran from the protesters to his bunker because he just didn't want to see them. It's very similar to that. It reminded me of that as well. Um, the fucker in chief. And like, that's kind of a proud, a proud tradition of presidents. Like, remember George W. Bush, how much time he spent down on the ranch clearing brush and all that shit? Sometimes the best thing you can do as a president is plug your ears, close your eyes, and say... <laughs> but that's the cry of the disenfranchised. They're not disenfranchised. That's your thing, man. Don't give it to the presidents. Good boy. <laughs> Just imagine how lonely it must be at the top. <laughs> yeah, so I feel so sorry for those guys. Um, the the uh, the other interesting thing about this giant Hooverville, um, so it was about it wasn't forty thousand soldiers or forty. I think it was maybe forty five thousand was the estimate of just people. Maybe twenty thousand soldiers and then their families and stuff, all living in this giant Hooverville and. Um, uh, it was also like racially integrated in a way that like nothing was at this time in history, which becomes kind of important to the story because um, it it's seen by some historians as like one of the main reasons they didn't want to pay out these bonuses it was because they would have had to give bonuses to I think it was about eight hundred thousand black people. Black oh, people, no. black people who risked and risked their lives, were injured, were traumatized in one of the one of the most horrible wars I'm in history. Su- I'm surprised they didn't have a loophole for that, considering they had the uh, black the black people who were in the military fight under the French flag. Yeah, I I, I don't I I heard about that part and like. I don't know. I think that had like no legal standing. I think they probably just worked something out with the French military, like take our black people because we don't like we don't like the look of them fighting we're, under our we're, flag. We're racist and we don't want them to be side by side with the good <laughs> well, white folk. Well, I mean, I'd have to look more into that part of the story because I don't imagine. I, I don't. Too. I don't imagine the French were any less racist either. But maybe they were just happy to have anybody. Because, I mean, that was a war of just bodies. It was like, the French we need just, bodies. The French were just happy to have cigarettes. <laughs> Wait, now I'm doing it. <laughs> um, have you ever seen a French man hold a gun? It's silly because he has a cigarette <laughs> and a coffee cup in the other hand. That sounds badass. <laughs> the, only, the, the only military in the world where they hold their rifles with one hand because they can't give up their cup of espresso. Yeah, freedom fries and so on. <laughs> I do miss a good freedom fry. <laughs> Just one. Um. So, and be um. Before the uh, or around, maybe it's simultaneously that that this Hooverville was built. Um. There were there were there were soldiers. There were these people. The, we'll just call them the Bonus Army, I guess living all around the city of, of Washington, D.C., and including in this, um, there was an abandoned building that was like in, it was about to be like remodeled into something else. And the way it was described by the author of one of these um, history books was the front of the building was just like missing. So you could like see like the floors, like, and see like, um, like kind of like cubicles. Yeah. And it was just like, yeah, it totally impoverished soldiers and their families, like all living in this building. And 
The police chief again was like, he let them stay there, but then eventually he was forced to drag them out. And um, I don't know, I read just directly from this bit here. Um, July 28th, 1932, President Hoover ordered the Secretary of War to disperse the protesters. Towards the late afternoon, cavalry, infantry, tanks, and machine guns pushed the bonusers out of Washington. When the veterans moved back into the camp, police drew their revolvers and shot at the veterans, two of whom, William Hushka and Eric Carlson, died later. William Hushka was an immigrant to the United States from Lithuania. When the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, he sold his butcher shop in St. Louis, Missouri, and joined the army. <laughs> and what did he get for it? A fucking bullet. Well, a bu- a bu- not, not just a bullet. A bullet from a United States citizen police officer. Like in his, you know, supposed welcoming home country. Um, and the other guy, he um, also fought in the trenches of France. Um, so this was kind of a catalyst as well, this police shooting. Um Another aspect to this, besides the uh, the racial thing, was um, so MacArthur had great disdain for these people too. General Douglas MacArthur, big, big strong military man. Um, he was afraid of the color red. Yeah, he thought that this was like a communist plot, basically, and um, there was like a lot of infiltration of the Bonus Army, like. Uh, uh, the Hooverville and from like the secret service and FBI and like all these different people would like go undercover and try to figure out like, are these real, is this a bunch of commies? And they would always come back and say basically like, yeah, there's like three communists out of like 40,000 people. So it's not a big, it's not what you think it is. And they, people wanting to get paid. Yeah, it really was like, and, and the other thing was, is like, you might even imagine like this Hooverville is like a bunch of like maybe like drunk rowdy like veterans, but they they had like an explicit like it was explicit explicitly a dry area like people yeah. weren't even allowed to, to drink if they could afford it. Which yeah, they what I was couldn't. reading most of it was well, they were trying to have a mostly peaceful protest yeah yeah um within bounds and even like when things go bad the the military gets called in it was because a brick was thrown but um that's what uh, they say (laughs) that's what they seem to say a lot of times is that it always seems like someone throws a brick but it's i don't think it's often the protesters throwing the bricks i do know there was some point where bricks were thrown like i think they were thrown this that was the other thing was that the White House was like much less secure back in these days than it is now, and like you could like walk on the lawn of the White House, like it didn't have that huge perimeter with the fence around it, and um, that we know of it as now. And but the because these guys kept like coming onto the lawn and like they were just like sleeping on the lawn of the White House, like these homeless veterans, and you know. Hubert, Herbert Hoover didn't like the sight of it. Then they actually started like ramping up security around there just to like get them out of there. 
Oh, one other detail I heard that was um, really kind of funny and stupid is um, at one point, one of the ways they tried to disperse the these 40,000 people was by showing, uh, they showed like a newsreel of, fuck, I can't remember it now. What was it? They showed a newsreel of, like, oh, yes. They showed a newsreel of people out in California, like, panning for gold and how they're all, like, they're all getting rich. So it was their way of being like, hey, you guys, just go to California. You can pan for gold. Wasn't the gold rush long over? Way, 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 way. But, like, that was how desperate they were to get rid of these people, like, without... You know, wow. sending in the army, I guess. Yeah, and it Without didn't pay in their di- bonuses. Didn't, didn't work at all because, like, where are they going to go? How are they going to get there? Like, they have nothing. They're living in trash. Like, Hooverville is made of garbage. Like, they're literally living in like a garbage city. Um. Anyway, I just thought that was funny. They like, I, th- I think they even projected it like on the Capitol building or something. Um. Uh. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I think there's several other things that happen uh, along the way. I mean, at one point, a bill is passed in the House to give them the bonuses immediately, but then the Senate just it shuts like it down. Instantly shut down, right? Yeah, and the 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 Senate, like when they when they shut it, when they voted it down. They like they normally like come. I guess like the tradition was they would actually come out to like this like balcony or something and, like announce their decisions. Okay, but they were so like af- I don't think they were even afraid. I think they were ashamed. They like all went out the back exit of the building so they didn't have to see these soldiers. And um, yeah, that didn't help anything. But basically, I guess there's this one final like part to this story, which is that. Um, the military gets sent in, um, the actual honest to God military going to kill former military people, um, or at least, you know, terrorize them out of their, their, uh, shanty town. Um, so there's three big, big military names that were all part of this as well. There's MacArthur, there was Patton. Even Patton was there. Wow. And then a sort of young, younger kind of a, I don't know, he was, he was like kind of, I don't know exactly his position, whatever it was called, but uh, Eisenhower was like right beneath MacArthur. Yeah. I guess Eisenhower was kind of trying to like issue like caution. Eisenhower and Patton were there. Yeah. They were part of the... The troops that were led by MacArthur to disperse the camps. Yeah. And um, I think at one point even, MacArthur was so hell-bent on this. Like we said, he was like really um, convinced this was like some sort of communist plot. He was also racist. You know, he didn't like seeing that this this, this camp was like in, racially integrated. Um and um 
Oh, I'm trying to find this one thing. Hmm. Oh, here we go. Okay. Um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go through the army intervention thing. Um Okay, although the troops were ready, Hoover twice sent instructions to MacArthur not to cross the Anacostia Bridge. Uh, so that's where this, this Hooverville was along the, I guess it's called Anacostia River, uh, to, not to cross the, the Anacostia Bridge that night, both of which were ignored. Shortly after 9 p.m., MacArthur ordered Miles, um, some other military guy, to cross the bridge and to evict the bonus army from its encampment. At 4.45 p.m., commanded by General Douglas MacArthur, the 12th Infantry Regiment uh, and the 3rd Cavalry Regiment, supported by blah, 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 tanks, commanded by George S. Patton, formed in Pennsylvania Avenue while thousands of civil service employees left work to line the street and watch. Just imagine what's going on right here. It's like, you know, like I'm not. I mean, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of bad shit going on these days, and like people are very worried about like the ar- actual army being sent out to break up like the protests that are happening now in America. Yeah, sure. But not to say, but just by comparison, this is so much more like brazen and fucked yeah. up. Yeah, it is. Because also, it's they're attacking like their brothers in arms, right? Yeah, it's like military on military destruction. Like, um, so yeah, there's tanks in the streets on on Pennsylvania Avenue to get rid of these impoverished people living in a shanty town. Um. Uh, the bonus marchers, believing the troops... Oh, this part's sad, too. The bonus marchers, believing the troops were marching in their honor... Yeah, they thought it was a parade. ...cheered the troops until Patton ordered the cavalry to charge them, which prompted the spectators to yell, Shame, shame. After the cavalry charged the infantry with fixed bayonets and tear gas, uh, something called Adam... Adamsite, an arsenical vomiting agent, Jesus, this is like gassing people with arsenic, entered the camps, evicting veterans, families, and camp followers. The veterans fled across the Anacostia River to the largest camp, and Hoover ordered the assault stopped. MacArthur chose to ignore the president again and ordered a new attack. This guy is a fucking maniac. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, MacArthur just gets worse and worse as he gathers more power in later events. But uh, Claiming that the... Yeah, I know. Yeah, you're right. Um, claiming that the bonus march was an attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. <laughs> 55 veterans were injured, 135 arrested. A veteran's wife miscarried. Then 12-week-old... Bernard Myers died in the hospital after being caught in the tear gas attack. A government investigation reported he died of enteritis. I don't know what that is. And a hospital spokesman said the tear gas didn't do it any good. During the military operation, Major Dwight D. Eisenhower 
later the 34th president of the United States, served as one of MacArthur's junior aides. Believing it wrong for the military, for the army's highest ranking officer to lead an action against fellow American war veterans, he strongly advised MacArthur against taking any public role. I told that dumb son of a bitch not to go down there, he said later. I told him it was no place for the chief of staff. Despite his misgivings, Eisenhower later wrote the Army's official incident report that endorsed MacArthur's conduct, of course just following orders. So, um, did I mention they lit the whole thing on fire? Yeah, yeah they, they, no, lit, they the, lit the <laughs> whole thing on fire. They killed at least they killed at least two of the men. Dozens were, or two of the bonus army men were killed. Two babies were killed as well. Um, Dozens were injured, and it was basically Hoover maintaining that the whole thing was just made up of agitators, anarchists, and communists, um, which sounds like my type of people. But um, <laughs> but it wasn't even. It wasn't. They were no, it was actually nine out of ten of the bonus marchers were veterans, um, and 20% of those were disabled veterans. And I bet a lot of the veterans fucking even voted for Hoover. Probably. <laughs> they probably, like, generally approved of him. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this, I mean, if you just think about the demographics, like, it's likely that s- some of them must have if out of f- 20,000 people. Um, yeah, and... In their infinite wisdom, the hosts forgot to mention how the saga of the Boneless Army ended. Listen to Paul Dixon, author of The Bonus Army, an American epic, explain how the bonuses were finally granted to the soldiers. And Roosevelt was elected. He did not want to approve the bonus for veterans any more than Hoover did. What did he do differently over the next few years? Roosevelt allowed them to come and, and, and protest again in 33, and then again in 34. He gives some of them jobs in the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was a, which was basically a, an army of tree cutters, but he doesn't give them the bonus. In fact, he cuts veterans' benefits, one of the first things in office, he cuts, and then when the, the, when the bonus comes up again, the immediate payment, it's passed by Congress, both houses pass it this time, but he vetoes it before a joint session of Congress, and he says the country can't afford this, and of course they, 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 then, he, then they come back again in 34, and then he sends a lot of these guys to work camps in the Florida Keys. Tell us what happened at the veterans' camps in Florida on Labor Day, 1935. A powerful hurricane, unlike any other hurricane that's ever been recorded hitting the Western Hemisphere, slammed into the Keys, and there had been 250 veterans were killed in in an hour. Uh, The power of the winds were so intense, there were about 250 miles an hour winds, that literally some of the veterans died when their, their skin was just... The, the sand and the little stones were just used as like missiles and just took the skin off their body. Oh my! Um, and and immediately the first, the first journalist to show up is is Ernest Hemingway, and Hemingway immediately writes this intensely, the angriest thing he's ever written, accusing the New Deal of being responsible for the, the deaths of these veterans. The deaths of the veterans literally turns the country around so much that the next year the, the bonus passes. I mean, their deaths are, in fact, part of the narrative, the part of the, what causes the Congress to finally be able to muster enough votes to over, override Franklin D. Roosevelt's third veto of the bonus. 
Your final chapter deals with the legacy of the Bonus Army and especially one particular piece of legislation. Tell us about that. Well, as the first guys come back from World War II, they, they, they're, they're, they're running into some problems. There's not enough medical care. It's a problem that always happens during the war. A lot of the case workers at the VA have been, have been drafted and they, can't, they don't have enough people to, to deal with wounded men who've lost limbs. And there's this huge thing building in Congress that, that says that we can't let this bonus army happen again. Now we've got over 10 million guys coming back, 14 million people coming back, and we've got to take care of them. And that's what a, a very bright man named Colmery, who worked for the American Legion, comes up with this vision. He was a World War I vet in the Mayflower Hotel. He goes to the Mayflower Hotel, and on, the, on Mayflower Stationery, writes out this GI Bill of Rights. It said, you have a right to housing, you have a right to an education, you have to write to all these things. It's a very tense moment. The bill is passed uh, over some very strange and powerful uh, people who don't want it. Segregationists who don't want it, and, and some elite educators who don't want it for other reasons because they're afraid of too many of these guys coming to fill up the, the elite universities. But, 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 but it gets passed, and what happens is it transforms America. It propelled millions of, of people who had come out of the Depression and gone to war it propelled them into the middle class with housing, with education. And it was, it was an extraordinary time for America. And it, it was the model for how, we, how veterans should be treated after a war. And, and, and whatever veterans get now, and I know there's a lot of debate about what they're not getting, but whatever they do get is, is largely a result of, the, of, a, of a motion that began with a bonus army. Paul Dixon is... I mean, to like people, people that are into like sort of... Um lesser known historical events probably heard about this before but i think a lot of like average people don't have a clue about this i mean i knew about it and i'd forgotten a lot of the details until i read up on it again i didn't know much about it but i do think there's a lot of interesting parallels here to just like the type of protesting that's happening today is they're protesting over different things but but the government's reaction the fact that basically the protesters have reasonable Reasonable demands are basically just, hey, we did this service for the country. Most of us didn't even want to do. It's just our lives led us to this place to where we're poor. So one of our only options is serving in a military. Mm -hmm. We kind of expect to be rewarded for it, you know, for coming home, for doing your bidding, for having our brains fucked or twisted. Right. I mean, it's... And this is what we get. We get... We get... um, A bonus that we're not going to see until we're dying. And it's just not even... It's a paltry bonus as well. Um, When profits for these companies we fought for have increased by thousands of percents. Yeah. Yeah, it's, It's fucking gross. That was the exact word I was going to use, yeah. Um, and what we also get in the modern day is like George W. Bush sending people off to die and then slashing the veterans' uh, uh, funding, I guess. Um for like assistance, for medical assistance, for all these things that are important for people when they come back from war, <laughs> um, which leads to like these really 
scary numbers of like like high rates of suicide and homelessness amongst veterans today like yeah sometimes people forget like some people sometimes people are like oh those were only like those like those like whacked out vietnam vets who like ended up homeless and addicted to heroin it's like oh no it's a giant it's even worse now <laughs> probably yeah. i mean at least some of the stats like i looked up a little oh, bit stats of it are horrifying um this is even from like this is from like this is a study from like 1917 maybe anyway or sorry 2017 um just one quick stat in 2017 veterans accounted for 13.5 percent of all deaths by suicide among u.s adults and constituted 7.9 percent of the u.s adult population so that's disproportionate in 2005 veterans accounted for 18.3 percent of all deaths by suicide and represented 11.3 percent of the u.s adult population so yeah so things haven't gotten better no um and I think the other thing is, is, you know, so we've been talking about just these, we've mostly been talking about military men this whole episode, but like, which is a surprising topic, but yeah. And I mean, but I think like some of the most convincing anti-war activists are people that have been in the military. No, I think so too. I mean, your friend, for example. I mean, this is going to be a separate episode, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah. A friend what, of mine. What was his name again? Daniel Hell. Yeah. Um, he's a good example of that kind of person. Yeah, that's true. Um, but, yeah. Um, but, yeah, Smedley Butler had it right. War is a racket. I mean, it's a... It's almost like a hundred year old document now, but I don't know. I would pass it out as a pamphlet just to like, I imagine because it gets right to the, it gets right to the heart of the problem in such simple language. I imagine the numbers that he states have only grown in recent times. Oh yeah. Probably. I mean, he would be immensely. He is rolling in his grave. He's spinning at like hyperspeed in his grave right now. Um, yeah, I don't know. That was uh, that was our history lesson, I guess. I, I feel like there was so many other interesting details, but we've been talking for a while, and um, I don't know. I feel um, like there's one something else I want to say, but can't quite remember. Mm. Why does it seem that a lot of these protests for? <sighs> just want to say more equal distribution of wealth are always just struck down so cruelly. And that's not even what people who are supposed to represent us. I I agree that it, I mean, that is the, the trend, but like these guys weren't even doing that. They just wanted what was already promised to them, which was a very small amount of money that would have helped them out tremendously in the, in like the heights of the great depression these people were starving and living in trash heaps and the government still wouldn't give them their fucking money. Even though like it passed through the house 
Senate still shuts it down. I mean, what they they couldn't have been like penny pinching that much. There's no, no, no way, way in hell. <laughs> no way in hell. You and I, and I didn't look this up, but like I guarantee there was like a million other things they were spending money on, and probably all kinds of like you know nasty like uh, collusions with with private business. Sure, and. That the money that they could have handed out to those people would have been like less than a drop than a drop in the bucket. Like, I think it really was like lar- largely racially motivated in a, in a lot of ways. And maybe they didn't want to reward reward quote unquote bad behavior of <laughs> protesting the way that they did, even though it was peaceful. Um. Yeah. Shit. Another oh. bummer of an episode. <laughs> well, that's that's a bit of history for you. People. Yeah. I, I think it, this this is a major event, in my opinion, in U.S. history, and it's just not spoken of really ever. Um, it's only spoken of as this, like, can you believe this weird thing happened and no one talks about it? Like, that's the only time you've, like, even when you look at look it up online, like most of the websites are these like defunct like GeoCities level websites, like World War One dot com and stuff that like even have short articles about it. I mean, there are a few books about it. Um, there's one I really want to read called I believe it's called The Bonus Army, an American Epic. Um, there's a there's a couple of good interviews with that author. Um, online. I'm going to link to a bunch of stuff, of course, but um, should we call it? Let's call it. All right. Uh, Godspeed, General Smedley Butler. <laughs> yes. May things get better and <sighs> just, just fuck war. So, general recommendations. What do you got today, Jason? Have I ever talked about the boys? <laughs> um, is that a show, or is it a new thing? <laughs> it's a new thing. One of my uh, one of my favorite ways to waste time on the internet. There are many ways to waste time on the internet, but I I've always been a big fan of the Internet Archive, like archive.org. I don't know if you. Oh yeah, yeah. Or not. Yeah. But. You can go to their internet arcade and they have basically every like PC game ever from like, I don't know, the 1970 onward emulated. Not everyone, newer games, obviously not. And you can just play all these old classic games in your web browser. I had no idea. And, um, it covers a lot of gaming history, and I don't know. It's a great way to waste time, or if you want to revisit some of your dad's childhood favorites or something, <laughs> you know. Granddad's video games. <laughs> it's just uh, 
it's just something that I find curious. It's nice to look through all these things that I didn't know existed and be like, wow, it's neat. Do they have um, Wolfenstein? Oh, definitely. <laughs> you can just play it in your web browser. Waste the whole Trying day. Trying to remember any of the old games I played on PC as a kid. That's the first one that always comes to mind. But, um... Yeah, archive.org is really cool. Yeah, I, they've all, I got a lot of like old radio broadcasts that can be really cool, old movies, software. That's where it's a, where you can go for a free like um, film clips. Yeah. Like and uh, you can tell what like people like some of them look really familiar because they're used in so many like lower budget like documentaries and yeah. stuff. Um, cool. So my recommendation is the Internet Arcade at archive.org. Give it a go. I second the archive.org in general, too. Okay, I'm going to recommend a movie. Um, I guess since you're talking so much about World War One, it reminded me of this movie I saw um, whenever the last time I was, I was in America. Was that last? Was that a year ago? Yeah, I think just about. Um, it's Peter Jackson's documentary called They Shall Not Grow Old. It came out in 2018. Um, he found like, like 600 hours of, of footage, uh, film footage and, and interviews with, um, British soldiers who were in World War One, and um, they just talk really candidly about it. And um, it's interesting on a few levels. Like one, just on like a technical level, it's amazing what they did with this movie. They took all this grainy black and white footage and they colorized it and made it like higher resolution. And um, they added like a lot of sound to just make the whole thing seem more real. Um, there's this weird distance that like seeing old jerky like black and white footage without sound like puts between you and being able to really like empathize with the people that are on the film sure and i saw it in the movie theater so it was even like kind of more immersive um but um it's just really good it's really it's it's kind of moving i mean i even if you like put out of your mind, like all the fucked up politics that led to world war one, like, and just think about these, it's mostly these like really young, young boys who are like barely 18 sometimes like living in the most like insane environments, you know, in the trenches of world war one. Um, and then hearing them as like ancient old men, like recounting it and not, not even talking about it bitterly, just like, matter of factly like oh and then my friend's foot fell off and oh I, I landed on my buddy's corpse and like it's just crazy um but it's a strong recommendation and there's there's even a even in the theater after the movie ended they played kind of the behind the scenes thing which showed how they did all the restoration stuff to the film which was really interesting as well so i recommend that and uh speaking of your friend's foot falling off. <laughs> let's uh, let's go put our foots back on. <laughs> Good afternoon. Good night. Goodbye. <laughs> See you. <laughs> mm.
is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me. Understand what I'm trying to say Can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today If the button is pushed There's no running away There'll be no one to save With the world in a grave Take a look around you, boy It's bound to scare you, boy And you tell me So mad, feels like coagulating. I'm sitting here just contemplating. I can't twist the truth, it knows no regulation. Handful of senators don't pass legislation. And marches alone can't bring integration. When human respect is disintegrating, this whole crazy world is just too frustrating. And you tell me. China, then take a look around to Selma, Alabama. You may leave here for four days in space, but when you return, it's the same old place. The pounding of the drums, the pride and disgrace. You can bury your dead, but don't leave a trace. Hate your next door neighbor, but don't forget to 